This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. Welcome. Thank you. So you describe yourself as a green populist. What do you mean by that? Well, green populism is uh, something that I described in my book, which came out uh, first a couple of years ago. And really, it's, it's not how I describe myself per se, although I think I'm engaged in it. The, the concept is about talking about the environment, about the climate crisis, the things that we need to do, like getting to 100% green energy on the grid, talking about them in a different way. Uh, in, in a way that reaches people better. And so uh, taking cues from people like Nigel Farage, from uh, Donald Trump, from Boris Johnson, you know, who, who cut through in a very simplistic manner, but without the dishonesty in my case, I believe that green populism has a role to play in how we speak to people. So for example, getting to 100% green electricity on the grid, <clears throat> we can describe that as energy independence. We can talk about disconnecting from global fossil fuel markets and having indigenous energy forms that we set the price of is about freeing ourselves and having control of, of our energy supply. That's in a different term to saying, we need to be 100% green electricity to uh, fight the climate crisis, save polar bears. So you're talking about just a much more straightforward way of communicating. Why do you think it it's, it's so hard? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I think that you know, people in my, um, my walk of life, my fields of life, tend to overcomplicate things, you know, and I, I tend to see things very simply and, and say them as I see them. That simplicity is through the core of you, I can see from what I've read about what you've done and how you've taken a vision of something and actually delivered on it. So I think probably the windmill by your caravan is a good place to start in talking about that. That's when you were living as a traveler and you decided that you wanted you put a windmill there. Can you just talk me through why you decided to do that and then how that ended up growing into ecotricity? Yeah, so uh, we're talking about the early 90s. I just spent the entire decade of the 80s living on the road, living a different way, just looking for a different way to live, really. I was self-sufficient, lived in trucks and buses and things that I built myself. And I had a little windmill by the end of the 80s powering my trailer and had really an epiphany. I saw the first wind farm built in Cornwall, big windmills. I was aware that the way we made electricity in our country back then was the biggest single source of climate emissions. I was also aware of the climate crisis. And, um, and I thought to myself, I could spend another 10 years living a personal low impact lifestyle, or I could drop back in and try and build a windmill on this hill, which I knew was windy because I had a little one powering my life. And so I decided just to do that. And it took five years to go through all of the planning hurdles and I had a lot to learn. And, and my starting place was with nothing, no experience, no qualification, no money, 
and, and very little credibility, I have to say, as a hippie living on a hill. But uh, I finally built it in 1996, Friday the 13th of December. It's a day that, uh, you know, is special to me. And, and then realized that to build more windmills, I had to get a fair price for the power. Knocked on the door of the local power company. They were monopoly buyers at the time. You had to sell your power to them. And they laughed at the idea of green electricity. And Margaret Thatcher had just liberalized the energy market and it just became possible to be an independent energy company. So I did that next. I formed Eco Electricity uh, in 1995, actually, just before I built the windmill. And we were the world's first green energy company. Not, not vegan. I think I heard you say vegan in the introduction. Well, so it's green energy company. Vegan football club. We'll come yeah, to that. Vegan football club. That part's yep. true. Um, and our energy is certified vegan now because energy has entered the supply chain in our country, power and gas, that is from industrial farming, made from animal abuse, basically. And so it's very important to us to disassociate from that. You left school at 15. You described yourself as being on the road, living as a traveller. And, and, and that I mean, it sounds very straightforward when you talk us through the steps there, but it obviously cannot have been straightforward going from your little windmill to where you ended up. Where did the concerns about sustainability and that capacity, which is an exceptional one, to, which is to think in very straightforward terms and to deliver, where did that come from? When did that come from? When were you first aware of this drive in you? I think it's in my nature. And I was first aware of, let's say, sustainability concerns when I was a kid at school. It's probably like 12 or 13 and I was looking at all the cars on the road and there weren't as many as there are today but I knew they had roughly 10 gallon fuel tanks and I tried to imagine how much fuel that was in total where it came from and when it would run out and that part was crucial for me because I used to like invent a lot of little things that were battery powered as a kid and I knew how fragile batteries were actually they didn't last very long and back then when they were finished you had to throw them away so energy was precious to me and and nobody talks about when energy when oil was going to run out and this is in the 70s so uh, that was my first conscious concern about sustainability and you've gone on to develop many many other things beyond ecotricity talk us through i, I suppose chronologically what you've done so we're, with ecotricity we began in wind energy and we um, you know we we built some pioneering projects from the mid 90s all the way through. We built Britain's first megawatt class windmill, first industrial windmill that was uh, behind the meter, so not connected per se to the national grid. This is a very uh, interesting concept for direct supply to factories, which is starting to happen now. Uh, we did it in 2000. We brought Britain's first solar megawatt class solar project into life. And then we brought green gas to Britain in 2010. And up until then, I'd felt as an environmentalist that we had the answer for electricity. We could make it renewably, but we had to just give up gas, which is current thinking of the government, I believe, that we have to give up gas and use heat pumps instead. But we brought green gas to Britain in 2010 and, and at that time discovered that we actually have a way to make gas using anaerobic, digest, anaerobic digestion, which is a, a well-established process. Uh, but back then, the two feedstocks for that were either food waste or energy crops, which are monoculture and come with all kinds of problems. So we went looking for a different way to make green gas. We found grass. Britain has an abundance of grass. We published two reports. One was just last year. We're building our first green gas mill right now in Reading. It goes live on the grid in about one month, and it will make gas for 4,000 people. And the study that we've done shows that there's enough grass in Britain to make all of the gas we need. So that's like super exciting. Off the back of that, we have just started a research project to make food from grass because there is some great nutrition in grass, which cows get, but they, they don't get it as effectively as we can. There's enough grass grown in Britain 
to make twice as much protein as we all eat every single year. So that's really exciting to us as well. We built Britain's first electric car, the Nemesis, started that in 2008 when there were no electric cars in the world. I simply wanted a greener car, couldn't buy an electric one, so we built one. It still holds the land speed record in Britain. And off the back of that, we put it on the road in 2010, realized that there was a real chicken and egg problem for this electric car revolution because people wouldn't buy cars if there was nowhere to charge and people weren't building somewhere to charge because there were no cars. So we jumped in and built the electric highway a national network of charging points for electric cars up and down the motorway network. Uh, we sold that last year. 2010 was also the year that uh, I rescued Forest Green Rovers and began that adventure in football. Uh, it wasn't intentional, just my local football club. And, and I had to change so much about it that it became a deep green football club and something really quite unique in the world of football. And it's a great example of uh, green populism, really, because the, the stereotypical opinion back then was that a football audience wouldn't be interested at all in the environment, wouldn't stand for the kind of changes we needed to make, like like uh, giving up animals in, in the food and that kind of stuff. But we found it to be completely untrue. Our fans have completely uh, bonded with the idea. We have four or five times as many people come into games now. We sell 10 times as much food. We have an international fan base. And we found that football is an incredible platform for communicating green ideas. And then most recently, uh, we created a process to make diamonds from atmospheric carbon. Uh, we launched that, I think, about two years ago. It's called Sky Diamond. And we've got a couple other things uh, rumbling in the background. We're going to launch an electric airline next week. And uh, we've got a water machine in R&D that takes all forms of household water, black water, gray water, everything you can imagine that today goes down the sewer and is, is treated, not always, by a water company somewhere and turned back into drinking water. We've created a device that's one meter cubed that will take a house off the water and the sewage grid. It's going through global certification this summer, and by the autumn, it will be uh, ready to be deployed anywhere in the world. That's more or less it. <laughs> yeah, I think that needs a round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> I, and just to say, because I've got so many questions firing up from all of that, and I'm sure that you might have, have as well. So if you want to ask questions, please just send them via Slido. You can just click on that QR code over there and they'll come through to me on here and I'll be able to put some of your questions to Dale as well. So I want to go back to the, the green gas because that, I mean, that sounds like a sort of fairly no-brainer solution. Mm. Why isn't it cutting through? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Uh, I'm asked quite often that that same question. And I think almost in a way it's too good to be true, but also there's like an inertia in, um, in the affairs of people. You know, when I first uh, wanted to build a windmill and, and bring into being this idea of green electricity, a different kind, that was my first experience of people shrugging and saying, but you know, like who wants it and, and will it really work? You know, just, just lethargy really. And you know, I've been told so many times by people that if it was that simple, somebody would have done it already. So there can't be any merit in this, you know. And what I've found in, roughly 25 years of, uh, of, of doing this kind of stuff is that it's necessary to uh, make a demonstration, to build something that works, and, um, and then you can really kind of get some traction. So we published the studies uh, that show how much grass we have. Process of anaer anaerobic digestion is well established. Grass is just a new way to feed it, but we aren't getting a lot of traction at the moment. But I expect that we will, because we have a real problem. How do we decarbonize home heating? which is a long way of saying, how do we give up gas? And I don't believe we have to give up gas anymore. I believe that we just have to put a different kind of gas into the grid. And if you look at a national heat pump program, by comparison, 
It's incredibly expensive. It would permanently raise household energy bills. We'll need three times as much renewable electricity uh, to run homes with heat pumps than without. Uh, we have to massively upgrade the grid. The, the total cost is about 300 billion pounds. But a green gas program would cost about 50 billion pounds, provide a transition from far for farmers from animal agriculture to something else, create 160,000 jobs in the rural economy and put 15 billion a year into that same rural economy. And all of that does sound a little bit too good to be true, I reckon. So I'm guessing you don't waste much time getting frustrated because your brain is ticking over on all the, the good things that you're doing. But do you get frustrated at the fact that you feel like there's a solution there that seems quite a straightforward one and it's, it's not being scaled up? Not really. I suppose there's a couple of things to say about that. I mean, I get bored easily, but then I have a lot of things going on, which helps because everything takes a long while to, to make progress with, you know, the, the Sky Diamonds was seven years of R&D. Green gas has been 10 years in the making. Uh, but when you've got a lot of things going on, that's helpful. But also, I think that um, when things are more difficult, then it's more rewarding, you know, so uh, I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm fine. Question here from the audience. How do we make a sustainable lifestyle a necessity and not a luxury? And obviously implicit in that question is it does feel like it's more expensive to live sustainably often than the more expensive choices. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's one of the problems that we have to overcome, actually. I do think that the world has changed. When I began 25 years ago, green energy absolutely did cost more, for example. Today, it's absolutely the cheapest form of new energy that we can build. So it's cheaper than fossil fuels, way cheaper than nuclear, that kind of stuff. And so that's changed. Electric cars, when they first came into the world, were more expensive to buy by a very long way. Uh, that gap has narrowed. Now, now cheaper to run for the lifetime. So if you look at the lifetime cost of owning an electric car, it's actually cheaper. And so the, the technology is changing the economic equation. I think we have to kind of break out of the, uh, the mindset that this green stuff is more expensive. You often hear right-wing commentators on TV and radio saying that we can't afford to get to net zero or 100% green electricity on the grid. The opposite is the truth. We can't afford not to because we can save so much money. So I think there's just a big challenge in communication and, and updating people's kind of uh, outlook to show that uh, big picture as a country, we absolutely can afford this. But it's still true that if you go to buy vegan products, you're paying a premium. That's wrong because plants are cheaper than animals. Electric cars, a little bit more money to buy now uh, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, how do we do it? I think, I think we just get there eventually by continuing to communicate and innovate and see the things that are invented today become mass produced, you know, in five or 10 years time, which drives the price down. Another question from the audience. They're coming through thick and fast. As you've got great ideas, what would you do about the retrofit issue in the UK? How would you get people to actually make changes in their home? Uh, this must mean retrofit in terms of uh, insulation energy efficiency. I'm assuming all of that. Yeah, I would yeah. assume so. You know, I think that the uh, energy crisis has done a big part of this job for us. You know, I think we've all been traumatized by £4,000 a year energy bills. Yeah. And I think to, in to encourage people now to, uh, to reduce their energy bills is much easier than it used to be. Because we're used to energy being really dirt cheap and we've treated it like dirt. You know, we, we, we waste it. We, don't, we haven't worried about that kind of stuff because we didn't need to. But the days of cheap energy, certainly cheap fossil fuels, they're over. And, and we have to make that change. So I think it's a mindset thing. And I think the door is open now. People want to know how they can get their energy bills down. We need the right kind of program. I think the government's most recent one was, was a flop in terms of how much money they managed to give away. It was made overly complex and that kind of stuff. So you, you've got you've to make the program fit for purpose. But I think post the energy crisis, it's going to be an easier job than it was. Um, going back to the green gas 
someone in the audience asks, couldn't we create green gas from grass and food waste? Well, we can. Uh, the, there are two problems with food waste, in my opinion. One is it's only ever going to be a relatively niche source of green gas, right? It's not scalable. The second is if you contract for food waste to feed a green gas mill, for example, you might want to place a 10 or a 20 year contract. It's the same in recycling and energy from waste. If you have long term contracts to take recycling or rubbish and burn it for energy or take food waste and, and create gas from it, you disincentivize proper efficiency in terms of reducing rubbish creation and in reducing food waste. Half of all the food we produce at the moment in our country is thrown away. We need to change that. But if there are contracts everywhere to provide cash incentives for people and their food waste, that, that, that works against um, reducing waste. It's as simple as that. We, we, we shouldn't incentivize producing waste, which can happen. I spoke to Chris Skidmore earlier, the, the MP, who uh, former energy minister who did the, the climate review, the net zero review, and he very much focused the review on the economic positivity of, of going down the route. Um, he said one of his concerns was cancel culture. It's like not sort of diverting the important issues around being on the right path to net zero by people sort of criticizing perhaps food choices, whatever else might come is, is part of the debate. What do you think about that? I think the economic argument is the, uh, is the right choice. It's the one yeah. that I make now because it, it trumps everything. And I, I'm not quite sure the point was about cancel, cancel culture, uh, but certainly criticizing other people for food choices and, and other choices, that's not constructive. That's not gonna work. So we've persuaded a football audience uh, to go green. They've gone veggie, vegan, they buy uh, electric cars and solar panels, and we did that. Not by telling them what they should do, and not by criticizing the, the way they currently live. We just showed them how it could be different. We showed them in a football context how we can tackle the three big issues of energy, transport, and food. 80% of everybody's personal carbon footprint is in these three things in which we make choices every day. It's how we power our homes, how we travel, and what we eat. So it's in our control. And we simply showed them uh, how we as a football club can tackle those issues in order to really seed the idea for them of, of what they could do. And that's how we do it. But absolutely criticizing doesn't work. I think arguing for the environment uh, doesn't work, not with everybody. But you make a simple economic argument, you're going to win. You've spoken before about the disconnect that people have between the choices and what is done to deliver the choices that they're making, for instance, in food. But you're obviously talking about a very gentle way of kind of, I suppose, ending the cognitive dissonance. Would you describe it as a cognitive dissonance? I think there is. I think there's a policy dissonance as well. You know, we put a lot of money into animal agriculture, which creates food that creates health problems and puts a big burden on the NHS, for example, and drives the climate crisis as well. And, and farmers are struggling anyway. Animal agriculture is a super marginal business. We make animal products cheaper than they really should be which increases consumption of them. You know, there are a billion animals living in our country right now in industrial farms that would be killed every year. One billion, which is an incredible sum. And, and if you look at our recent history since the Second World War, our consumption of meat and dairy has, has done this because we've had an abundance of cheap fossil fuels and subsidies to, to produce ever cheaper meat and dairy. Uh, we have to break some of these uh, cycles, actually, 
And so there's a policy dissonance. We spend more money supporting fossil fuels right now than we do renewable energy. Can't make any sense, really, in a world where we need to stop burning fossil fuels and have lower energy bills, which renewable energy can give us. On the food issue, you gave funding to enable the film, the documentary Seaspiracy uh -huh. to be made. How important was that to you? Yeah, I think it was uh, a really important film. Uh, the issue of what we're doing in the oceans is like really important. Uh, you know, trawling the, the bottom of the seas, you know, with industrial scale boats, killing everything, you know, in order to find some of the some of what we're looking for. It's an incredibly destructive process. And, you know, it's it's a fact that the oceans are running out of fish and marine life. And um, and they're really vital to us as a species. They're vital to the planet, to the, you know, the whole ecosystem, the whole climate depends on healthy oceans and and you know it's just part of that great wildlife decline that we're seeing on land as well you know the sixth great extinction of the history of our planet is happening right now and it's due to two things it's due to the mass burning of fossil fuels and the mass farming of animals or in the case of the seas the you know the mass harvesting of them with industrial trawlers and and these are things that we have to uh, address would you make a distinction between eating animal products and animals in a sustainable way? Is it, is it the intensive farming that you're opposed to or is it consumption full stop? Well, I think for me personally, there's an ethical issue as well, but there's absolutely a climate issue and, and then all kinds of pollution comes from intensive animal farms. But what's really interesting in here is people do advocate for less and better meat, better, better welfare, higher welfare standards, that kind of stuff. But the fact is, we have industrial farming because only industrial farming can produce meat in the quantities that we want it. So that's why we got here. It wasn't a, it wasn't a choice. Uh, why don't we do it this way? We can't produce the kind of uh, volumes of meat that people eat today other than with industrial farming. So yeah, we could have uh, regenerative farming, you know, a nicer form of animal farming. That would reduce meat consumption in our country massively. So I would support that. But it's not the end game. I don't think, because we still have uh, animal rights issues to deal with, but um, yeah. There's a linked question from Jendrick in the audience. Does gas from grass mean farmers wouldn't be able to use pastures to raise cows anymore? Is that a conflict you can sidestep somehow? <laughs> I'm assuming you see it as a positive. Yeah, you know, I don't see it as a conflict because certainly in our experience talking to farmers, animal agriculture is a marginal business. At the moment, we grow 100 million tons of grass a year in Britain to feed to animals. We can grow that grass. That's the same job for a farmer, but we can use that to make gas instead. There's more money in it for farmers than there is animal agriculture. It's better for biodiversity because we grow a diverse uh, species mix of grass instead of a, a single monoculture grass. We have no inputs, no fertilizers, no pesticides. So we can create vast new areas for wildlife at the same time as give a transition for farmers from animal agriculture, which everybody that's serious about this topic knows we have to do because we can't get to net zero without reducing our meat consumption. I mean, that's a fact. Uh, Chris Skidmore, you know, will, will tell you that, I'm sure. And so it's quite perfect in that respect. Definitely not a conflict, it's an opportunity for farming. Doesn't burning gas, an audience member asked, still release carbon into the atmosphere or is the argument similar to burning wood from renewable sources? <laughs> well, there's the thing. First off, Yes, it does release carbon into the atmosphere, but that's carbon that was grabbed from the atmosphere over a very short time frame, six months. So the argument with burning wood like at Drax is similar, although they are using virgin rainforest or virgin forests from, uh, from Canada. And so it's, it's, not, it's not all wood waste. It takes so much longer to grow a tree than it takes to grow grass. It's like carbon offsetting. 
you can say, look, I'm, I'm going to pay these a few thousand pounds to plant some trees. And, and that's, you know, that's going to take care of several tons of my emissions. Those tons of emissions will come in 20 years time with grass. We grow it on a six month cycle. So yes, there is a residual release of CO2 and the gas is burned, but that's put it, uh, that's a very short life cycle. But it's enough to offset. Well, it's, it's still carbon neutral because all of the carbon in the grass is taken first from the atmosphere. And, and so if you then uh, release that by burning the gas, it just goes back to where it came from. So it's a, it's a net neutral impact. We haven't even talked about your diamonds yet. <laughs> I don't know if they're sky diamonds. That's not, but they are. Okay, let's have a look. I don't, we can't pass them around the audience, sadly. Uh, but I can have a look. We might have get them back. No. <laughs> it's a bit tricky here, so I'm just going to try and... Oh, oh. I burned it the wrong way. They've gone everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll make sure we pick all of these up. Oh, there are loads. Well, right, hang on. Yeah. So, I've emptied the I mean, bag on the floor. It's, okay. Blimey. Obviously, diamonds come from carbon. I, I don't know if you're going to be able to see that, but... The plan is to hold that's, with the camera. So this comes, obviously, from the air. Just describe how you, you came up with this idea, did you? Yeah, I did. Uh, I was thinking a few years ago, probably about 10 years ago, about yeah. how, I was thinking about geoengineering, which is a concept of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere on a planetary scale to deal with the fact that even when we get to net zero, there's still too much carbon in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. We have to reduce it. And I was thinking, however you do it, through seeding the oceans or man-made technology or something like that, However you do it, pulling it out of the atmosphere is just half the job, half the battle. Yeah. You have to lock it up into something permanent. So I came up with the idea because diamonds are the most permanent form of carbon that we know of. I was supposed to hold them here for some filming. And it, so I yeah, came up with the idea and then thought, well, how, how am I going to get uh, atmospheric carbon I I into a diamond form? Uh, but wouldn't it be amazing if I could? Uh, I think it was about a seven-year R&D journey for us to do that. And yeah, we cracked it a few years ago. We've been perfecting the quality of our stones now. We made a perfect diamond a few months ago. Perfect as in no occlusions. Like this? Oh, the... Perf yeah, perfect as in a D, flawless, whatever a perfect diamond is. One in 20,000 stones dug from the ground comes up that good. We did it in one in 500. But what I love about this is it's a carbon negative industrial process. Possibly the first, well, definitely the first in the world. So our process is inherently carbon negative. Uh, we, when we've made these, there's less carbon in the atmosphere than when we start. Our entire ingredient list comes from the sky. We use the wind and the sun for power. We take rain and we split it to make hydrogen. We release the oxygen and then we feed, uh, we, use, we use direct carbon capture and we feed carbon dioxide and hydrogen to some ancient bugs which stitch it together into methane. And then we put a mix of gases into a diamond oven and hey presto, we make these. Um, <laughs> what did you think when it first came out? It's like, wow, it really works. Well, the first one was brown. And uh, I still liked it, you know, but now we make perfect diamonds. So, and, and this is really interesting because this began as a carbon capture project. I thought, wouldn't it be great to be able to uh, go to a company at the end of the year and say, here's your carbon footprint in a sack of diamonds, right? And yeah. you can give them to your staff or, or what you want. That would be lovely. But it turns out that uh, they're really expensive to make. Right. So, and it's not a feasible way of capturing a carbon footprint. But then we, uh, we looked at the conventional mining industry to see what, its impact was and how this was a, a better alternative. We had to commission data because there were no published reports, but to make a stone this big, you can't even see it in my fingers. It's, it's a one carat stone, it's a fifth of a gram. To make that, the diamond industry digs 1100 tons of rock out of the ground, 1100 tons, exposes 30 tons of toxic metal to the environment, has a carbon footprint of about 500 kilograms of CO2, and, and, and uses uh, 500 tons of water. 
just to make that one stone. Okay, so I think you've answered there then, because I was going to say, is it just a gimmick? Because it's not really taking that much carbon out of it's not the atmosphere, but it's the big picture. Well, it's the avoided carbon, water, uh, digging, all of the avoided environment impacts. I mean, they are massive, really massive. Inherent in one of our stones is probably about 16 kilograms of carbon in the whole process to make that stone removed from the atmosphere permanently. All right, it's not like a, it's not a hill, is it? It's not a massive amount, but we avoid so much. I mean, 1,100 tons of rock, you know, 500 tons of water, half a ton of greenhouse gases, just in one little stone. And there are 150 million carats of diamond dug up from the ground every year. If uh, you guys won't play Minecraft, I doubt it's a kid's game. But in Minecraft, you you, uh, you have blocks, cubes. If you if you add up all of the uh, the spoil from the mining industry every year, you could cover Belgium in Minecraft size cubes. You could cover Belgium every year. Well, um, an audience member asked about your thoughts on cultured meat. Is it a project you'd be interested in taking on? No, no, it's not. The, I guess there are a few reasons. One is currently, and I don't think it'll change in a hurry. Currently, you have to take tissue from a cow with a, with a, you know, a very big needle. It's, it's a deep, painful process for the animal to get the tissue to actually culture. It's always going to be more expensive than just growing plants. And you know, maybe it's got a niche role for people that really feel they can't give up meat completely or enough. I, I don't really know, but we don't need it because all of the, um, all of the nutrition we need, we can get from plants. And here's the thing, animals don't make anything. They don't make protein, they don't make vitamins, they don't make minerals. They get it all from the plants that we grow to feed animals. And if we all ate plants in our country right now, we could free up 75% of all of our farmland, which is half our entire country. We just wouldn't need it. We could give it back to nature. That's how inefficient it is to grow plants, to feed to animals, to feed ourselves. Will you go into politics? <laughs> no. I don't think so. I, I intend to be involved somehow in, in the next election, but really, uh, really from our kind of uh, advocacy policy point of view, uh, I want to share the things that we've been uh, working on and the vision that we have for how we get to be uh, a green Britain, you know, the economic benefits, the jobs, that kind of stuff. We're doing a bunch of studies that we're going to publish over the next 12 months. I think the first one will be next week, actually. So, uh, yeah, I did think about it, but I thought it's, it's not. not why, why, why don't you want to do it? But I just don't think it would suit my nature. Too much of a free spirit. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we are just about out of time. It's the magic wand moment. You get to wave it and effect whatever change you'd like to see. Really, one thing or ten things? As, my, as many as you want, because it's a, it's a magic wand. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. So I, I, would, uh, I would change economic policy. I would change taxes and subsidies and regulations to make it... Um, well, to firstly, firstly, to make it a regulation that we have to do these, these new things, uh, you know, renewable energy, plant-based food, that kind of stuff. Take away the subsidies for those bad industries, the fossil fuel industry and the animal farming industry, and, and switch those to the good side, I would call it, you know, to renewable energy and, and plant-based farming. I would uh, change regulations. For example, you know, we, we don't allow schools to set their own menu at the moment. We insist that they serve meat two or three times a week in dairy every day. So even when schools, because of parent pressure and kid pressure, want to go veggie and vegan more, they're not allowed to. It's just an example of a regulation to change. I would take VAT off of everything that's about sustainable energy and take all taxes off of the good things and just leave taxes on the bad things because we've got to give an imperative to people to, to change things. And our economic playing field is skewed the wrong way right now. So a, a bigger, simpler way to say what I've just said is I would change the economic playing field and point it towards the things that we need to do. We can be 100% powered by green electricity and green gas. 
we can electrify transport completely. The car revolution is well underway. Buses are on the road now. HGVs are coming, and we're going to start an airline next week. The tech won't be here for two years, but we're going to start. So we can electrify transport and take fossil fuels out of that. And we just have to reduce our consumption of animal products. And, and we can give land back to nature, right? There's a terrible decline of nature in our country. I mean, absolutely cataclysmic. And that's because of animal farming. So I would change those things. Energy, transport, food, taxes, regulations, subsidies, and it would be a uh, job done. Your utopia. That'd be, yeah, be my, my ecotopia. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's been great. To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.